Hi, this is Jeff Kober, and we welcome you to this Disney Insights podcast. Well, Destination D23 had considerable publicity around that, with social media agents blogging, vlogging, tweeting, and podcasting the highlights to fans the world over, but mostly of Walt Disney World. We'll cover some additional details and aftermath of that. We'll also consider some additional thoughts on what was announced there. But almost under the radar this week was an entirely different presentation targeted not to fans, but to investors. This includes a promise to invest some $60 billion in Disney parks worldwide over the next 10 years. We'll look at the key messages of this presentation. We'll discuss how effective, or not, the message was to Wall Street. Finally, uh, my new book is completed and in the process of being published. I'll share the book cover and offer an overview from 100 years of Disney to 60 billion in Disney Parks investment. We have a lot to cover here. Make sure you check out DisneyInsights.com as we're gonna have a lot of visuals Uh, visuals from the $60 billion presentation to um, some of the things that we're returning to on the Destination Disney D23 event. And then ah, my book cover. I'm so excited. And I apologize. I sincerely apologize that my podcast is so late getting out and more. It's so inconsistent. But getting this book out has been a challenge. I, I spent... I spent eight hours just dealing with the publisher yesterday. It was just so many details and so many issues that have to be resolved. But I'm very excited and we are just steps from the finish line of being able to offer this book to you. All in time for the 100th anniversary of the Walt Disney Company. But first, let's talk about the future. <laughs> and then we'll go back from the future after that. Um, Today, well, this week, um, Bob Iger, but largely Josh Dumarrow, made a pitch to Wall Street analysts and investors um, that were actually gathered at at Walt Disney World um, for an investor summit. This, I haven't seen the video on this. I have seen presentation. I have seen... And I'm sharing with you what was shared in the meeting um, all over. But, um, but this was an intent to take a core group of people who make serious um, financial decisions and, be, um, and give them an idea of what Disney parks are up to and why they should be investing in the long term of, of Disney. Um, uh, there are many key points to this. Let me just read a couple of key thoughts um, that were presented. Uh, today, Disney has the largest physical footprint of any global theme park travel business, with 12 parks across six resort destinations around the world. That is that is true. And by the way, Walt Disney World is the largest of any of those and does the most significant business. It, uh, for decades, the Magic Kingdom at Walt Disney World has been the most visited destination in, in, um, 
in all of the um, theme parks out there across the globe. And it, it is far and beyond that. In fact, Epcot and the studios and Disneyland and the others have also been in the top 10 for many decades. <clears throat> but um, that has slipped a little bit for them. However, they have always maintained and done everything is necessary to creating uh, the... Um, uh, to keeping Magic Kingdom as the number one tourist destination in the world, the number one theme park. Um, they've talked about the fact that Disney Parks has seen growth following periods of significant investment, which included the addition of Cars Land at Disney California Adventure, Star Wars Galaxy's Edge at Disneyland Resort, and Disney's Hollywood Studios. Avengers Campus at Disney California Adventure and the Walt Disney Studios Park in Paris and more. And what they have is this diagram, again, available on Disney Insights, which shows how they have invested in different attractions. And it begins with Mission Space back in 2023 and to the Tower of Terror at Disney California Adventure and then Soar and then Expedition Everest and then Toy Story Mania, which ended up being built in two parks. You see this gradual growth. Then it goes into another decade, starting in um, 2011 with The Little Mermaid, first at Disneyland, then at uh, Magic Kingdom, Cars Land, the new Fantasyland, um, the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, and you start seeing a significant growth. And then you get to um, two significant events that, if you'll recall, opened on the same day under the same leader of Joe Rohde, Pandora World of Avatar and Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout. Um, that targeted between 2017 and the beginning of the pandemic, substantial growth that was added to with Toy Story Land Um Toy Story Land at Disney's Hollywood Studios, as well as Pixar Pier at about the same time over at Disney California Adventure. And then finally, the advent of Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Of course, all of that just dropped terribly with COVID. But then it picks up again with Remy's Ratatouille at the start of the 50th anniversary, as well as Avengers Campus, which followed over at California Adventure, followed by some some and by the way um followed by some key things that have happened recently guardians of the galaxy um <clears throat> over at epcot tron at magic kingdom and then the whole revised toontown with mickey and minnie's runaway railway all of these things show and they and the graph shows that the 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 um that the operating income has dramatically increased. Um, they increased the investment by threefold and their income, their revenue from all of this has increased by four, by fourfold. So they're seeing, this is why, what is bringing them to the statement that we think it's worth investing 60 billion in these Disney parks, because we see that every time we invest, growth comes as a result of it. He goes, then he talks about something called scale. He goes, quote, we stand alone when it comes to scale, said Josh tomorrow. 
And while our scale is impressive, we have no shortage of space or regions in the world in which to tell stories. We have a wealth of untapped stories to bring to life across our business, said um, DeMarro. Frozen, one of the most successful and popular animated franchises of all time, could have a presence at Disneyland Resort. Wakanda has yet to be brought to life. The world of Coco is just waiting to be explored. There's a lot of storytelling opportunity. And in fact, that in another diagram, they show Cars, Toy Story, Star Wars, Frozen, Avatar, Mickey Mouse, Tron. They show them all. Interestingly, they also show Avengers, but then they show Guardians of the Galaxy, which in truth, they could have said Marvel instead of Avengers and Guardians of the Galaxy. Rather, instead, they chose to break it apart, <clears throat> largely because we can't do Avengers at Walt Disney World, but we can do Guardians of the Galaxy and so forth. And so they're just saying, hey, look, between 2012 and 2023, we created investments around these properties and it has paid off. And there are so many more things that we could bring to life. For instance, Wakanda was brought, was mentioned. The world of Coco is waiting to be explored. We're going to talk about that in the latter half um, because formally no one has yet put a shovel in for Coco into the ground, but it looks to be out there. No one has ever mentioned the idea of Frozen coming to Disneyland Resort. Of course, it's coming to Hong Kong this year and it's coming shortly thereafter to... Um, uh, to Tokyo Disney in the form of Tokyo Disney Springs is one of the three things along with Peter Pan and Rapunzel. Rapunzel being another great IP. Peter Pan being a great example of how you can go back to a traditional IP and still do more. As well as the Alice in Wonderland crazy BMX ride over at Disneyland Paris. And then Frozen is, um, is uh, also coming to um, Walt Disney Studio Park in Disneyland Paris. So they're just saying, hey, look, We've got lots of great IPs that we haven't even begun to do rides or attractions or really explore. And then they go on to say that Disney Parks has over across its, its um, well, across its six resort properties, it has over a thousand acres for possible future development to expand theme parks across its existing sites. Doesn't say anything about the fact that it could also build in other places, but it's just saying, hey, in the very places we have, we have the equivalent of building seven new Disneyland style or Disneyland size parks. That doesn't mean they're building seven new parks. It just means they could, they have enough space that if, if warranted, they could build the equivalent of what would be seven Disney parks and um, and so and then they go on to say look our Disney parks welcome well approximately a hundred million guests each year and then they say something kind of interesting they say they go on to say yet there is still enormous untapped potential for reaching more consumers according to Disney's internal research there is an addressable market of more than 700 million people with high Disney affinity 
it has yet to reach with its parks. In other words, they're basically saying, hey, we did our research and we've got about 700 million Disney fans out there. Um, they, they call it Disney High, uh, High Disney Affinity, but they're saying, I get, I love Mickey Mouse, or I just am so into Frozen, or I'm a big Star Wars fan. It is across that whole genre, which they have identified 700 million of them, and yet they're only welcoming about 100 million a year. In fact, they go on to say, for every one guest who visits the Disney park, there are more than 10 people with Disney Affinity who do not visit the parks. Now, why don't they visit the parks? There are all sorts of reasons why. Distance, economic um, prosperity, their, their affinity, their ability to, to leave that country or go somewhere else, um, their age. There's lots of factors that may, may uh, play into that. But basically what they're saying is like, we haven't tapped the end, of, we haven't tapped the end of this market. There's a lot more people who would love to come to a Disney park if they could figure out how to go to it. And so we need to take advantage of building out those kinds of markets. In fact, they call it, they do call it fans as the headliner of this area. And they're saying as Disney expands its footprint and offerings, not only will the company be able to reach much more of its existing fans, but it will create new fans and loyal customers. So they're saying, look, you should invest with us because we haven't even begun to tap this market. And the long range possibilities are huge for it. They also spent a considerable amount of time talking about um, Disney Cruise Line. By the way, before I go any further, let's just remember, these were forward-looking statements that Disney made, and they listed a ton of reasons why such developments that they're proposing may be impacted by regulatory issues, <coughs> labor markets and activities, <coughs> uh, strikes, technological developments, um, problems in in the in the marketplace problems politically and so forth there's lots of lots of reasons why they might end up having to go a different direction but they're just saying hey if we could if we could project this we see the reason for spending 60 um, billion dollars now um, part of that 60 billion is going toward in a big way to the Disney Cruise Line and they made some interesting notes about that. First off, ask yourself, how many ports do you think Disney Cruise Line currently visits? You might be surprised to know that there are actually 94 ports they visit in 40 different countries. What they're looking to do is nearly double the worldwide capacity of its cruise line. Right now it has five ships, but they just are including the wish, but including the wish and th um, three more ships. Um, well, what is going to happen is the wish opened last year or, or set sail last year. There are two ships being planned, the Disney Treasure and the Disney Adventure in 2025 and another in 2026. What is also astonishing about this is that currently 
they have 98% of the fourth quarter um, of fourth quarter booked occupancy right now. That's 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 just huge that they are able to get that occupancy and that they offer something what's called two times the yield versus industry. In other words, um, they're able to get a, f- a far better bang out of their rooms than um, um, than what they're doing otherwise. Um, and then they also talk about a double-digit return on investment for what they have put forward on the ships themselves. So they're, they're making a compelling case. They also... Um, Talked a little bit about Disney Vacation Club and the fact that there is huge opportunity there and that they are already building out what they call 1,000 keys. Think of a key to a room. So it's essentially 1,000 room keys of potential. Now, some rooms can be put together into, you know, a larger suite or something, but they call it 1,000 keys between um, the new villas at the Disneyland Hotel and the new Disney Polynesian Tower, and then also the campground um, cabins that are going into Fort Wilderness. There are a thousand different keys, and they're saying that too has potential for um, uh, for development. They 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 ended up saying uh, throughout our history we've created enormous growth by investing the right amount of capital into the right projects at the right moment said bob Iger. we are planning to turbocharge our growth yet again with a robust amount of strategic investment in this business this is why josh tomorrow at the end of destination 23 kept saying trust me trust me we got a ton more stuff coming we got way more plans ahead of us more than you can possibly imagine we got a lot coming that's because they see themselves potentially doing a 60 billion dollar investment into disney parks alone and they see that that has huge potential now as of march 20th well, let me just let me just talk about what the effect of this was and why they did this. If you go back to March twentieth of twenty twenty one, Disney under um, Chapek chose to do an investor seminar. This one was done. You could watch it live. Anybody could watch it live. Uh, it was streamed. It was it was not in a hotel room like this one was, and they did this. Um, pitch on Disney Plus. And as a result of this pitch, Disney shares shot up to an all-time high that was north of $197 per share. If you were to have sold, you would have made a ton of money that day. The challenge is, is that has slid steadily down to less than half of what it was at that high. That successful event they did in 2021 came because investors saw short-term successes in a very difficult period of COVID. We still were trying to figure out COVID. Investors were wanting something in the in the entertainment market they could latch onto. Disney made a great pitch about what they could do on Disney Plus. Some of those shows, by the way, are playing right now. Um, the, um, 
And others of those things will never see the light of day again. Going back to the, the forward-looking statement that that we're gonna. But at any rate, they made this pitch, and and Walmart, Walmart. I'm sorry, Wall Street. Maybe the same thing. Wall Street bought off on it. Um, now currently it's trading in the low 80s, so all the more reason you need to do another pitch. The challenge here is this: investors don't see the parks as a short-term opportunity like they did with the promises of new that new Disney Plus programming. And in fact, when you say 60 billion over 10 years, you got to, you got to see this as a long-term investment if you're going to put your money in it. Otherwise, it's difficult to get shareholders to follow along. Now, in truth, Disney is a fantastic company. Um, they used to, and this was like back in the Eisner era, era, they used to read stories of individuals who invested in Disney in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and how now in the 90s or in 2001, it had, it had grown in leaps and bounds. If you invest at a low time, and by the way, I'm not advocating you invest, but it's low right now. If you're going to look at it, look at it now. And if you're willing to put it away for a long period of time, you will probably see that Disney is a great long-term investment. However, times are fickle, times do change, and it doesn't help that Disney has kind of made some broken pie promises. Easily made, easily broken, as Mary Poppins would put it. And uh, what Disney needs to do is they need to build, they need to show proof that they're building some of the things that they promise. The f I understand because of a change in both the CEO and in the head of Imagineering, why we would have different announcements a couple of weeks ago compared to what was announced at D23. But it's, you gotta put boots to the ground and you gotta, you gotta, you gotta got actually deliver on something and not just talk about it. And many things have been, um, Cosmic Rewind, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, you know, it, it's a fantastic attraction. It has done very well for Epcot. Tron is a great attraction too. It took way too long to put that together, but it the, the, it is evidence that things are are being. In fact, I am I am um, just going to quote one individual who I will not name that will basically say, that basically has said this decade is probably going to be a wash and that Disney isn't going to build much. I can appreciate that skepticism when you make blue sky promises. But the fact of the matter is, is this decade could be far and above and beyond what happened in the Disney decade. And in fact, if you started with Guardians of the Galaxy, which was in, late 2019 um, and you go all the way forward, you could make a great case that this decade has a lot to offer when you look at what's going on across the globe with new attractions, the things that are being done at Tokyo Disney, the things that are being done at Hong Kong and Disneyland Paris is a whole new day that never saw the light of anything practically in the Disney decade. Um, 
or what they saw was a pretty miserable looking studio park at the end of it. So I, I am optimistic moving forward. But uh, I do want to transition at this point to some further um, D23 reflections. I, my previous podcast had a lot. You should listen to it if you didn't. I appreciate the great number who did. Um, but there have been, but I've also listened to some other podcasts and reviews and, and videos and whatnot. And I heard some messages and I want to, I want to talk about some of those. Some of those I agree, some of those I do not agree. And the first one I do not agree with is that Disneyland got no love. In truth, Disneyland is getting a ton of love. Dis in fact, this week, um, well, first of all, let me just start with um, by saying that um, um, let's just go through a list. Maybe they weren't highlighted well at Destination 23 because it took place at Walt Disney World and really it was about um, Walt um, uh, about uh, Walt Disney World and its expansion. But Tiana's Bayou Adventure with the new Tiana restaurant that's just opened up, Tiana's Palace, which has just opened up, Adventureland Treehouse is not far along. Oh, and by the way, we should back that up to, hey, you just got Toontown with a whole Mickey and Minnie Runaway Railway. That has been completely redone. Haunted Mansion improvements were announced the week before Destination D23. At Destination D23, they talked about new Star Wars meet and greets that are coming to you and not Walt Disney World, for whatever reason. They talked about the additional um, Osoko, one of those promised Disney Plus uh, shows that was given back at that D23 investor. And by the way, great show. I've enjoyed it. Um, they plan on having an Osoko. Osoko. Am I saying that right? I'm so sorry. I've just got so many words in my mind right now. But anyway. A new version of that in Star Tours. A meet and greet with Asha from the new Wishes film. Downtown Disney Editions. New DVC Villas at the Disneyland Hotel. A new remodeling of the Paradise Pier Hotel into the Pixar Hotel. And then what they did talk about was this Avengers Campus e-ticket attraction. No e-ticket attractions were announced brand new. But of all the things that are coming from the ground up, I mean, there are remodelings of Test Track, of course, and, and of course, this Tiana thing coming, but there are existing attractions. This is a whole thing from the ground up that is coming to Avengers Campus and could possibly be something similar on the scale to Rise of the Resistance. Now, this brings me to one of the things that I saw or heard about, and I, I talked about the ride vehicle, and I said, boy, this ride vehicle looks like something akin to the Spider-Man attraction at Islands of Adventure. Somebody mentioned this looks a lot like the attraction vehicle for the new Peter Pan attraction at Disney Fantasy Springs in Tokyo Disneyland. And frankly, they're kind of right. Um, you will note, and I in Disney Insights, I show you a picture of the pirate galleon that guests will ride in... Um, <clears throat> excuse me, in uh, in uh, this Peter Pan's ride. I also show a show poster for this and how this magical galleon kind of sets sail 
um, above the clouds as you follow Peter Pan and Wendy and Michael and John, and there's a full moon behind it, and Neverland is way in the distance, and pixie dust is all around, and you, you see this, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, there are walls on this. Why are there walls on this? And what is this? How does this vehicle move? I think in a, I don't know exactly if it has wheels or if it's more, I think it's more like Ratatouille. But what makes it different is that I think it sits on a pedestal that allows it to have some vertical movement. In other words, to give you a feel like you are going, like you're, you are leaning back and that the ship is taking off at, into the sky. All this would make sense in Peter Pan, but it also would make sense in a Marvel attraction where you are heading through the cosmos, through the metaverse, metaverse not metaverse, <laughs> multiverse, sorry, to um, maybe even to a battle in Wakanda. Maybe they'll go back to that original plot line. But, but it does look a lot like these Peter Pan vehicles. And by the way, the, the ship for this Avengers campus shows three rows of guests, two, row, two guests per, which is what this um, attraction looks like as well. I think it's going to be kind of a super hyped i'm i'm expecting this to take probably elements of well you're probably more familiar with mickey's mickey and minnie's runaway railway and all the projection there but they use a heavy amount of projection in the pirates of the caribbean attraction at shanghai disney and it's very effective but it wasn't effective in my view in only the sense that I could look over the boat and see the water was very still around me and yet everything was moving on the screen. If I could put up walls so I couldn't look down and only could look across or up, it could give you a much more convincing experience of flying. Flying being important not only to this Peter Pan attraction but to this Avenger campus. I'm just telling you Disneyland, I think you've got something really cool underway and uh, it'll be fun to see what actually does end up happening. I want to talk also about the Disney Adventure, which is the cruise ship that Disney bought. It was uh, already far well underway and a lot of people have projected it to have gambling. And I've commented shortly or, or uh, a little bit on this. Um, but I want to talk about why I don't think that's going to be the case. If Disney is moving toward sports betting or aligning ESPN with sports betting, but I think that whole movement of sports betting and ESPN has more to do with trying to get an investor to come in and either partner with Disney or take the thing away. So that's why I think that is happening. When my experience with gambling, and, and I, by the way, I've never gambled a dollar, so I guess I don't have any experience with gambling, but having been in casinos and even having clients who are casinos and having spent a lot of time observing the guest experience in casinos, um, not my favorite client, although the people I've worked with were lovely, wonderful people. Notwithstanding, there's one thing that goes with gambling, and that is smoking. And I gotta tell you, Disney... Mm -mm, they're not big on smoking. 
And so how are they going to create a casino that's smoke-free and think that they're going to get people to buy into it? I don't think that's going to be the case. Singaporeans, yes, the Chinese, many Asian countries have a lot of adults smoking much heavier than you see in the United States. However, Singaporeans, where the ship is being based, by the way, you can fill that ship a lot of times with just Singaporeans. Singaporeans are dying to get out of that country because it's such a small country, city, state, what do you want to call it? It's, it's just a very small territory. And so they have the world's best airport for one reason. They're constantly getting on a plane and going elsewhere. This ship is going to allow them to do the same thing. They're going to be the ones filling up that ship more than anyone. They may dump off. They, it may be a one-way trip, which a lot of... Um, which a lot of cruise ships do, and they may pick up people there and bring them back to Singapore. That may occur, but they talk about Singapore being its main home port, and I don't think that they are creating a situation where they can create other home ports to pick up people and bring them back to Singapore. I don't think that's happening, at least it hasn't been mentioned. What I'm trying to say is Singaporeans smoke far less than those in the United States. It's maybe part culture, maybe part how uh, the people are there, maybe part regulatory because they just put so much attacks on those cigarettes or whatever. But the, but any rate, the thing about the cruise ship is, and by the way, what they do have, um, they do have casinos though, I will say in Singapore. In fact, what's interesting is the cruise ship, the new cruise ship picture has a picture of Singapore in the back of it with the Marina Bay Sands Hotel. You may not be familiar with it. It's a fantastic hotel with three different towers. And at the top is this, this floor that connects all three towers. And it has this infinity pool that is just, it's a bucket list item. But they also have a casino. But they also, but countries like um, Vietnam and Philippines have casinos. Moreover, Macau, just outside of Hong Kong, is the Las Vegas of casinos in Asia. And not only can you take a charter boat from Hong Kong to Macau, you can, and maybe you can even park in Macau. I don't even know that you can park a Disney cruise ship there. But if not, you they are now have the, like the world's longest bridge connecting you to Macau. In other words, they don't have to have a casino. They can go to destinations with big casinos. We do the same thing. We go to Atlantis, or we go to the Bahamas, Nassau, and a lot of folks go over to Atlantis. What does Atlantis have? Well, lots of things, but among them, a casino. And furthermore, what the ship didn't have in its original plan was kids clubs. And you know Disney does big kids clubs. So I can't help but think that space for that casino that was originally planned there is destined for something else, i.e. a casino. More to come probably on that. But for all the people who are talking about, oh, it's going to have a casino, I just would say there's reasons to think it might not. Let's move to the next one of something that might not. World Celebration is opening in December. So thrilled to be able to walk through the centerpiece of that area and not have to walk around um, uh, fences. So excited about that. People think 
Um, and by the way, more vegetation and trees have gone in over the week I, or over the last week. There is a lot of action happening on the exterior of this. But Communicore, World's, Communicore is part of World Celebration. But just because they said World Celebration is opening doesn't mean Communicore will open. There are shops, there are shops on Sunset Boulevard. But when Sunset Boulevard originally opened in 94 with the T Tower of Terror, most half of those shops did not, not even open at the time. So don't think that Communicore um, will open will open at that time. The exterior might be done, but probably unlikely the interior. Maybe a portion of the interior, and I say that because we talked about the Disney character of Asha making an appearance, and I'm scratching my head and saying, well, where does Asha go? That's, um, it's really not a country and world showcase. It could possibly go in what there is, their meet and greet area there. Although the Fab Five were supposed to go there. I don't know. I don't know what's going there. Maybe there'll be a Fab Five meet and greet and a, a special new character meet and greet kind of thing. And that will go there. But don't bank on Communicore being open. I'm just thrilled something will be open. So let's go with that. Pirate's Lounge. Uh, I had conjectured that it might be Tortuga Tavern. It certainly welcomes a big size group. A better idea pitched, I think, by Lumangelo and a few others came in the context of utilizing the former Pirates League or League of Pirates building. Um, many of you may not be familiar with that, but when you come off the ramp after Pirates of the Caribbean, you go into a gift shop. Originally, against the wall as you come off that ramp was a big room which had its own kind of unique gift shop kind of had a little classier items than the souvenirs sold in the larger market space and so it sectioned itself off as its own thing it, it, it disney didn't need that much merchandise space it had a lot of merchandise space um and it didn't need that much eventually it became uh league of pirates when the whole um, Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique thing went way to the top. They just, um, they just uh, decided to make this into uh, kind of a guy. Uh, well, I wouldn't say boys or girls could do it, but it was somewhat focused more on males uh, or young boys, and you could become a pirate. And they did a great job of theming this space. In fact. Honestly, you just need to add bars and tables and a kitchen somewhere and you're set to go. You do not need much to make this into a lounge. Now, it's an intimate space. That's for sure. It doesn't hold up. There's a foyer entry, which is very cool. And then you go into a larger space. <clears throat> Excuse me. But um, there is on the backside of that wall, a little tiny plaza I think there's a title for it. I have to look it up. You see it when you queue up for Pirates of the Caribbean in that in that little um, plaza area that goes back and forth before you go into the show building. You're outside, but you're in an overhang area, and you see a little plaza area to the side. They could section that off in a unique and different way and make that part of the lounge if it was so successful and required it. 
I honestly think this is a better idea. And then you save Tortuga Tavern, which even though it has been a seasonal thing, if you're expecting more people to come with all these attractions, then maybe you ought to do something like that. Let me go to the Disney Animal Kingdom expansion. And this is the head shaker for me. Clearly, Encanto and Indiana Jones were pitched at Destination 23. What wasn't said, but was somewhat um, intonated, was the possibility of Coco. And in fact, a couple of other bloggers and vloggers and YouTubers have said that. Most only talk about Encanto and Indiana Jones. It's interesting because no, it's clear that when you look at the image, and I have it again on DisneyInsights.com, it's clear where Restaurantosaurus was. You see this um, Spanish adobe style building going in there. It's clear what it is. Um, in fact, actually, there, if you look at that adobe building, they actually cover the front entrance to Restaurantosaurus there. So, and and then put palm trees in the middle. So it's actually a covered plaza is what they've done to the front of Restaurantosaurus. Long and short is, if this is only Encanto, what are they serving in that restaurant? Well, I love having lived my life in part as a missionary in Colombia. I love Colombian food. I love Sancocho. I love Pan de Yuca. I love Arepa. Um, there's so much to love. Lots of Colombia. I love a great Colombian bakery. We have several in the um, in this area around Walt Disney World. They are fantastic. And I could see there being a little tienda or something that would sell that sim similar to what you've seen recently in the last couple of years in some of the festivals at Epcot. But there's no way you're going to use a space that is as huge and is going to be bigger with this covered awning to sell Colombian food. You're going to be selling Mexican food, not Colombian food. You might pitch regions all over, but I doubt it. Furthermore, nobody's really talked about this carousel, which sits center, dead center in the front of the thing and what's going there, which again, I see having it tied to the, um, to the uh, to the animals found in Coco in um, when you go to um, the other world. So I see all sorts of possibilities for three zones there. I don't. And then the other aspect I've just got to got to note is nobody seems to see how Encanto could have anything to do with animals or conservation or nature, or Indiana Jones could have anything to do with animals, conservation or nature. And again, this is a head scratcher for me because I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, you, you've got the little boy and he gets his door and it opens onto a whole Colombian jungle. These, we could have a whole scene where, um, where we don't talk about Bruno, ends up having some dream that the animals in nature are in trouble and we got to go save them and so forth. And we're introduced to a lot of animals you don't see typically in zoos. That could be very cool. That alone makes 
Encanto a very cool ride, especially if they use some kind of ride vehicle similar to Mystic Manor in Hong Kong. Indiana Jones, again, archaeology is not that far from paleontology. I can still see dinosaurs even being saved here as you kind of, you know, maybe some um, archaeological artifact could bring dinosaurs back to life. It doesn't have to be an exact playout of the ride. I mean, it will be the ride flow system that is at Disneyland's Indiana Jones Adventure, but it doesn't have to be themed completely like that. Uh, it could be, could be all about snakes maybe, but as it is at the Indiana Jones um, Adventure at Disneyland. But I just think people could use a little bit more imagination as to how these themes could be tied to the themes of Disney's Animal Kingdom. And I think, I think it's going to be fantastic. I think this is great. Put boots to the ground and get it built because that is going to get your investors excited about investing at Disney. All right. One last thing I want to talk about. I know I've gone on for quite a while. But my newest book is on the way to the publisher. I'm excited to share the cover of the book. So please take a look at that at DisneyInsights.com. What I did is I, it's called, the book is called A Century of Powerful Disney Insights. And with it, there's a 100 uh, behind it. And in the 100, there are about 50 different little um, names and titles given from Walt Disney and Mickey Mouse to... Um, the Carousel of Progress and um, and Seal Island. And, and what is so fun is to see if you actually know who these individuals are. So at one point, um, I talk about CalArts. Do you know what CalArts are? Do you, or is? Do you know um, who... Um, uh, Haley Mills is. Do you know who Roger Brogy is? Um, these are Kay Kamen. Let me tell you, Kay Kamen single-handedly introduced by himself the most profitable, one of the most profitable things that any one individual has ever introduced to Disney. And it's merchandise. He brought in the idea of doing Disney merchandise. And we talk about all these things in the book. It's volume one, 1923 and 1973. On the back cover comes this summary. In over 100 years, the Walt Disney Company has emerged as one of the most successful entertainment entities across the globe. In this, the first of two volumes, we studied the first 50 years of Disney beginning with Walt and Roy. We look at major milestones and not only see the evolution of an organization begun in a garage, but how it truly became so beloved to millions around the world, from Oswald the Lucky Rabbit and Mickey Mouse through Snow White and Cinderella, from the Mouseketeers to Mary Poppins and from Disneyland to Walt Disney World, we share stories and insights from 1923 to 1973. We hope you'll be inspired with the ideas and how you can apply these stories in your own life and work. Join J. J. Jeff Kober, Disney author, former Disney Institute leader, 
and the foremost analyst on Disney Best in Business Practices on this magical journey. That kind of gives you a sense of what this book is all about, and it should be available in the next few days. I'll give you a heads up as um, we proceed and uh, just let you know that uh, we got lots more insights moving ahead because this is Disney Insights. Thank you for joining us for this very involved podcast. I hope you have a great weekend and I hope you have a chance. If you get a chance, share it and, um, and uh, give us a positive rating with, uh, to others. Let others know what is going on and what the stories are. And as always, according to uh, Sinbad's Storybook Voyage at Tokyo Disney Sea, always follow the compass of your heart. Have a great day. We'll see you real soon.